Hey everyone, I'm Frank Keith of Sweetheart Pub, and welcome back to Music Rookie. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with David Barbie, director of the Music Business Program at the University of Georgia. David's career in the music business spans over four decades, ranging from his time as a touring bassist with Bob Mould in the band Sugar, running a studio in Athens, Georgia, and ultimately landing in his current role as a professor. He knows the ins and outs of the music business as well as anyone, and well, it's literally his job to educate people on it. So I was excited to have him on the podcast. While our conversation does focus a lot on studio work and audio production, we are not gonna get into like, you know, mix bus compressors or anything like that, as this is not an audio production podcast. But David will give us plenty of advice that I think is applicable in almost any facet of the music business, and he'll echo some themes that we've heard from other guests. So, without further ado, let's talk with David Barbie. How did you start on that journey, like pre-Chase Park transduction, or maybe even at the genesis of Chase Park? When were you like, I'm going to be an engineer, I'm going to be a producer? Well, that's the better part of the story anyway, because sometimes how you get somewhere is, uh, I mean, Larry Bird shooting baskets at an iron rim nailed up to the side of a barn is more interesting than him like winning championships with the Celtics. We know that part. Made my first recording involving another human being when I was about nine years old. My dad was a musical composer and uh, produced a lot of things like uh, jingles in the 60s and 70s. And so I had like a quarter inch reel to reel tape machine. It was a Roberts 330. It was a tube quarter inch. And I would like record me and my friends. At first, it was like what I called a band, which is me playing the drums and like another kid playing the guitar and both of us like singing, like one microphone. And uh, I made the first album with multiple people in a band. And I was 12 years old. We sold cassettes at school. It's my first album, but I was always into it, you know? And then like when I was in high school, I still had this quarter inch machine and I would do things like, and it had this weird sound on sound function. It wasn't a true four track where it was a multi-track where you could, you could record more than one track, but it was like, you were just defeating the erase head, meaning like you record the drums and then you add the bass and then, but like you're putting the bass on top of the drums, like there's not like going to be any mixing of this after, like you're committing when you do this. So it was interesting. I learned, like I would play the drums and then I would listen, record like the guitar or something. And then it's like, it's too loud. And what I have to do is go back and re-record the drums and then re-record the guitar. But that's how I learned to do this. It's just by piecemealing these things together. And then I would do things like bar the glockenspiel from school and like the school band room and play along on something at home and then very carefully put it back the next day. So no one could tell that thing had been taken away. I think surely statute of limitations and this kind of thing has been, has run out by now, but the big breakthrough for me was the advent of the four track cassette deck. The first one I had, what I really cut my teeth on is um, Fostex X15. A Fostex X15 four track, which was, um, a thing that you could record and have four independent tracks on. And so um, I got one of these when I was, I might've been like a freshman at Georgia's right when they came out. And so I was early eighties. And so I was recording myself 
writing songs. And the reason I got into recording is because I was a songwriter. The reason I played in bands is because I was a songwriter. Most people play in a band and then realize, hey, we need to write some songs like the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. They didn't write songs first. They were played in a band and then realized we should write some songs or realized we should write some songs. And so I am. But with me, it was uh, I was writing songs and needed an outlet to get them out of here and into here so I could hear them. So I um, got into making these, you know, home demos on four tracks and then started recording my friends and my own bands with them and just really got into it. And then from there, I started going into the studio with other bands. First, I'd go with my own bands to the studio and just kind of take the lead in the studio. And then I started recording other bands. And the reason, the way I started doing that is I became an engineer producer by telling people that I was one which is much like in the 1840s when there was a gold rush in California, people got like a shovel and a pick and a mule and went to California and they're gold miner. I didn't have any qualifications or experience or anything. I just wanted to do it. And so I just told people I was one. So they would let me record their bands. And so it started out with me taking my little four track and my like two microphones and recording people like that. The trick with the X-15 is it only had two inputs, meaning you can only record two tracks at a time. And so I had this giant PA board. It was a sun with two ends on it. And um, I would get a mix through there and like record like, like everything onto one track through that and then do overdubs. Very much like people making records in the early 60s. Or um, this next I got was a Yamaha MT-1X, which you could record all four tracks at the same time. And that was like mind blowing to me to be able to record all four tracks at the same time. But I was recording other people's bands and um, the barbecue killers were an early one. The primates were um, an early one for me. Tragic dancers. That was another Athens band I did this with. And um, then I started going into the studio first with my own bands with Mercyland, and then with other bands. And the first other band to give me a chance in a real studio was the barbecue killers. And so um, I would go to the studio with them and just sort of tell the engineers, this is how I think it ought to be, and just sort of direct traffic. But studio engineers, especially back in those days, a little persnickety about letting other people touch the equipment. And so nobody would let me touch their gear. It's almost like I was a threat to them somehow. But there was a guy, Robbie Collins, who had the studio over on Avalumpkin called Underground Sound. And Robbie was an older dude, and he was really helpful. By older, I mean he was probably like, 30 or something he would uh let me sit at the console and touch the knobs and um he could tell that i was really into this and it was really helpful to me so um i would go over there and he would um explain things to me and then i started working in all these studios and then um once um i had done a few records as the producer well then i was a producer because i had like real album credits and um from that point, uh, John Keane, when my band I was in, Mercyland, which was my punk rock band, when that finally became engulfed in the flames that it was always destined to, uh, to be and broke up, John saw in the local, we don't know, maybe it was in the flag, we might have had the flagpole by then. He saw in the flagpole that my band had, um, that uh, Mercyland had broken up. And John knew that I was always coming over to the studio with other bands and with Mercyland and always trying to tell him what to do. And always like arguing about things. One great argument we had was about the use of reverb on drums. And I could go on for five hours about how I feel about that, which is 
It depends on the reverb. It depends on the drums. It depends on the record. But at the time, this is the era of like artificial gated digital reverb on drum. And that's just like far more triumphant than I ever want anything to sound. And I was into like experimenting with room mics. I had uh, really been into like the sound of the Zeppelin records and Pixie's Surfer Rosa, which Steve Albini had done, was one of the first things I heard him do. And I was like, man, that sounds different. And then uh, my friend Brian Paulson, not my friend yet, he became friends after hearing this uh, slint record he made, Spiderland, that I think is like one of the greatest sounding engineering jobs I've ever heard in my life. And they're very natural. And so I was really into that. And so I would argue with engineers all the time about getting the drums to sound like that, which is basically, hey, turn a few of those processors off and let's just hear the sound of the playing and hear the sound of the room. And I still favor that natural sound when I can get it. Anyway, so uh, John called me up and he said, hey, I saw in the paper your band broke up. Do you want to learn to be an engineer? I need somebody to work over here, which is like this hardly ever happens anymore because there's so much competition to get into this now. And at the time I was in my mid 20s and I had a baby and a pregnant wife and I was earning like maybe, you know, maybe seven to nine thousand dollars a year. And my wife stayed at home with the kids, with the baby and plus she's pregnant too again. So it was like. Yeah, I need to. I was driving a delivery truck and it's like, and my band broke up and it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I need to do something. So it's like, yeah, the engineer, they get paid. Sure, I want to do that. And then starts working at John's and it's like, John Keene deserves so much credit um, because for my whole career, really, because he needed help. I wanted to do it. And as soon as I started engineering in a studio, it was the first time in my life that I felt like I was a natural at anything or a natural fit. For me, rather, I was comfortable doing it. No work hours were too long. I'd record any band and little things in the studio, uh, like punching in on an analog tape machine, just seemed real easy to me. Just like figuring things out in a studio, how to make it work. I mean, engineering is simply just solving problems. That's it. We want the drums to sound like this. Okay, cool. Let me think about this. And sometimes it's a microphone or a mic pre or a compressor or the room or the head or the stick or the drummer or how it relates to the other sounds in the mix or something. But like right away, I felt comfortable in that environment. And so I interned with John for a few months and then I went to this seven week crash course of a recording school in Ohio on the recording workshop, which is a really phenomenal experience. It's very much sink or swim. It was five days a week, eight or 10 hours a day. And um, you're not well-rounded when you come out of there. You learn one thing, how to signal flow then onto analog tape machines. Now, of course, it's all digital up there, but you get out of that. And it's like after these six or seven weeks of this, you can either do it or you can't. It's not a year. It's not six months. It doesn't cost a bunch of money. It is very bare bones and intense. I thought it was like the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. And I came out of there and came back and was like, now I am an engineer. It's like the old uh, Chris Kringle, Santa Claus is coming to downtown claymation. Chris, are, are you old enough to remember that? Yeah, I am. I'm just old enough. For all you young people out there, you need to um, buy a couple of bags of your favorite Frito-Lay products and then like sit there and power watch some Rankin Bass children's Christmas specials. They're incredible. But there's one where... Santa Claus is coming to town. Young Chris Kringle, the boy, one day when I'm a man. And the next scene, he's standing by the window and it's the same puppet, but he's got a beard and he says, I'm a man now. And that's how he becomes Santa Claus. Well, for me, it was like, I'm an engineer now. So I called all these bands I knew. Barking Tribe from Birmingham, Alabama. 
Daisy here in town, Roosevelt here in town. Daisy, I, so I'm working on, working on like a record with Daisy like now, 30 years later. I recalled all these bands I knew, and of course the Jacko Nuts, and um, said, I'm an engineer now. I've gone to school. I know how to work in the studio, and John Keane is giving me a cut rate deal if I can book studio time over there on the weekends. And so I was just booked right away, and I am blessed with a sense of delusional overconfidence. That is, no matter what it is, I think I can do it. And I have busted my ass and failed so many times in my life as a result of this. I've blown up monitors and studios. I have had to take a machine to a repair shop in a, two Ziploc bags of parts because it's like, I can't put it, I don't know how I got it apart. I, I can't put this back together again. I don't know. Anyway, but, but, but seriously, it's like, I always have felt like I'm going to dive in and figure it out and I'm going to do it. And I have blown a lot of things by doing this, but I've also learned how to do a lot of things by doing this. And so one of those things was because I was not afraid of taking chances in the studio, I learned a lot. And I was confident when I called people on the phone, that's like, give me a chance. There are times where I definitely dug myself a deeper hole. There's definitely times where I punched the tar baby and paid for it and got caught. But there's other times where, um, I'll tell you one more thing, and I realize this is the world's most rambling answer. One of the first times I was working with a band over at John Keane's was this band called Greenhouse, and they had a, we were going to do a session produced by Mike Mills, and they hired me to engineer. The band came in, and I, this is, I've been working there a couple months, pretty confident in my abilities. And so um, they recorded the track, felt good. It's a good vibe. I had already, thanks to John, had worked with R.E.M. a little bit. And I knew those guys from like the early days of being in Athens. And um, so we were already, you know, real friendly with each other. And I knew the people in the band. It's a good situation, good vibe. They're feeling good. And they've got confidence in my abilities because I work at the studio now. And I feel like I know what I'm doing. So they play the track. Track sounds great. The bass player says, hey, I'm going to punch in. I hit a bad note, transition to the bridge. It's like, okay. So just go in there and replay. So um, on an analog tape machine, you have your tracks armed and you only want to arm the tracks that you're going to record. And since the band had just been in there, I had all 24 tracks armed. Now what you're supposed to do before you punch in the bass, I had two tracks of bass, one for the amp, one for the DI is you turn the tracks off on all the other tracks and you only have the two bass tracks armed. So when you hit record, only those two tracks record. And because I'm so confident in my lightning fast abilities to punch in and out, that one of the first bands I recorded, I was nicknamed the Cobra, which stuck with me for a while because of my fearlessness about punching in. Like I punch in the middle of a word because I believe I can get in and out. And sometimes I can't, you know, you don't know if you try until you try something. So he goes in, I'm feeling great. Session's going great. I'm all high adrenaline punch in and the song's going along. And the second I hit record, the whole track goes silent. And right away, because I'm fast, I punch right back out. Everybody stops in the room and looks, what was that? And I was like, hey, I accidentally just punched. And I thought about it and without even thinking about it, I was like, hey, I accidentally just punched over the whole band. I'm sorry about that. But this is an easy fix. If you guys want to go back in there and just play along with the track, I'll just punch the whole band and punch in and out. And they were like, oh, you can do that? And Mike's like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. I was like, oh, yeah, you can do it. It's no problem. I was like, okay, great. Well, why don't you guys do this? It might take me a couple of times to get the timing right, but we'll get it. And I said, okay, well, cool. I got to go make a phone call. If you guys just want to do that, let me know when you're done. I was like, okay, great. So Mike goes out to make the phone call and the band goes in the other end to record. Everything's cool because I've just explained it's no big deal. This happens all the time. I'll punch you right in and out. And as soon as nobody's in the room, I'm just like, fuck, 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 fuck. 
Uh, I love. Did you get it? The whole the full band punch. Oh, I stuck it. Yeah. But the truth is, like, I thought about it in the moment, and was like, okay, I had three choices. One, tell them I can't do it. Okay. Or there really, I had two choices. One to say I can't do it. One to say I can't. And then three possible outcomes. If you say you can't do it. Here's how most people would do that. Be like, guys, okay, I'm sorry. I just screwed up. I recorded the whole track. I'm really sorry. It's really bad. I'll give you some free studio time. And you've blown everybody's confidence. You are not, it's like, that's funny. I can't really recall like too many instances of Rick Rubin or Glenn Johns or, you know, who pick your engineer producer of choice. I don't think that Trina Shoemaker would have that happen to her in the studio. So you don't want to do that. Remaining confident, people keeping the artist's confidence is key. Keeping the vibe of the session good. Hell, the good vibe in the session is more important than the microphones. You know, a song and how it feels is always going to take precedence. Because you hear all this like lo-fi bedroom pop and the stuff's amazing. It's not about cool gear. It's about cool music and cool vibe and cool ideas. So um, three things were going to happen. One, if I couldn't do it, if I said I can't do it, we got to do it again. The vibe is busted. Or I could say I could do it. And if I can't do it, we have to go back to the beginning and do it anyway. So that's exactly the same. So I may as well say I can do it. Or three, there is a chance that you can get it right. And so I just trusted my principles of how to punch in, which to me was always count 30 second notes in your head and try and punch in and hit record in between them. The key is you got to have a good drummer. The drummer in the session was a guy named Mark Stepp. I don't know if he is still in the business or not. He moved to Nashville and was working in a studio up there. But he was such a consistent drummer. The guy was like a drum machine that I was able to time it up. And I told him, I was like, it might take me two or three times to get this. So just like, we'll start at the beginning of the course, just play along with it. And I'll just punch in and out. And it took a couple of times to do it, but I got it. And you couldn't tell at all. And the vibe of the confidence is high. And I don't think I admitted this to anybody in the band until probably like 10 years later, because one of the bass player in the band was an assistant. It was one of my first interns at Chase Park. And I finally told him and he was like, Oh my God, I remember you doing that. We were so impressed that you could do that. I was like, I'd never done it before in my life. I had no idea. You know, it's either, you know, you either, but if, but I thought that in the moment, it just seemed like busting the vibe of the session would be more costly than not trying something new. So there you have it. I don't even know what the question was. <laughs> I don't remember either, but I, there's, there's a good overarching takeaway there of just self-confidence. Yeah. It's like the, I've been watching a ton of like COVID bubble ball, especially NBA and one of the things like you hear people talk about, I love the NBA anyway. I like the story out the characters. I like how open the NBA is like their players. It's like, why, why do we have to have our names on our Jersey? Can we have black Lives matters or vote or something on the black of the back of our Jersey? And it's like, sure. It's the NBA. They're cool. They are, they're open-minded about things, but the personality is one of the things that like you would see, especially as I got in the playoffs is who do you want taking the last shot of the game? It's like, you want the guy that wants to take the shot. So there's something to be said, no matter what you do and having a confidence in your abilities to pull it off. And other people, other people feed off of that. I, I remember you telling me a story years ago about Chase Park. I think you built it twice or something like that, or it got, it, did it get renovated because you called a guy in to look at it? I don't want to tell the story for you. So um, when we built Chase Park, so I freelanced from the time I was working at John Keynes, before I built Chase Park, I freelanced. I worked in studios all over the place. I bet I worked in 50 different studios and not, you know, Athens, Atlanta, Nashville, going to make the sugar records, uh, different parts of the country. Just was all over the place making records. 
and just took notes and knew what I liked. So finally, by 97, I was like, okay, I need a place because my kids at this point, 97 would have been uh, three, five and seven. And so it's like, yeah, I got to yeah, like settle down here. So um, we found a warehouse and started building a studio. And I'd worked in so many places. I had a good concept of what I wanted to do in terms of like the way that rooms are laid out and gear and uh, et cetera, et cetera. I uh, was building it and I called. And as far as like acoustic treatments go, I decided to call Russ Berger who is a world-renowned studio designer. Russ designed 1093 over on Boulevard. Russ has designed probably a thousand studios. He is a legend and a well, a deserve, deserving legend of studio acoustic design. He's a brilliant guy. Called him on the phone and said, hey, I'm just curious. It's like we're building the studio. And as far as like interior sound treatments, if I had a question, well, before I just, no, I called him twice. Because the first time I called him before the studio to ask him about how much would it cost to get a design? And whatever it was where he started at the price of a design, I was like, you know what? I'm going to cut you off right there. That like you're way out of our league. I know you're worth every penny. I know you're busy and can command. Even I'm sure you're not telling me top dollar because I'm an indie thing, but I knew you're worth it. But like, I can't pay any of that. And so basically I'm not going to, I don't even want to waste your time. And thanks for taking the call. And he was real, very gracious about that. And he said, well, he said, look, I'll tell you what, build your studio. And if you get any questions along the way, call me. I'll be happy to answer questions. And I was like, great. It's very nice. So I got about halfway in. And so we had built a uh, wall and I was telling him about asking him a question. Like, so we've built our walls and we've got our drywall on both sides of the studs. And uh, I was feeling something. And he was like, well, why'd you do that? Like, do what? Because why'd you put a piece of drywall on the backside of the wall too? I was like, well, for better soundproofing. And he said, well, that's not really how it works. Let me ask you a question. Is you, uh, if you want, which has a more resonant sound? If you're recording a drum kit, a rack tom with a head on the top and a head on the bottom, or a rack tom that would have two heads on the top and no head on the bottom? I was like, and right away I was like, a tom that has two heads on the top and nothing on the bottom, it would kill the sound. He said, right. By putting a piece of drywall and nailing it to both sides of a wall, you've essentially created a resonant cavity. And it's like, if you walk into a new apartment or new house and you thump on the wall, it's just like, boom, boom, boom. It's like, and so I was like, well, what do you put on the back of the wall? And well, nothing because an air gap is the best soundproofing. You want to put all your mass and density on one side of a wall and then nothing on the back because it'll kill the sound will die in the air rather than having it resonate. And, so I said, I listened to him. I was like, well, he said, I hope you haven't done too much. I was like, oh, no, just call and ask a question. And meanwhile, I'm looking down the stairs. and can see these guys that have built this giant wall and are just about to pick it up because you build a wall on the floor and then you pick it up and push and push. And um, I told him, it's just like, I've said, well, thanks for the help. And so I walked downstairs and I told him, it's like, tear it down, start over. They're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I explained. I was like, Russ just told me this. And I go, well, maybe it's not that bad. I was like, no, we got to do it right. Cause I want to be, we might be here for a while. Now we've been there 23 years. We might be there for a while. We're going to have to just tear that down and start over. And one of them was like, man, that's going to take a lot of time. And you know, it costs a lot of money. I was like, well, it's my time and my money. So um, just tear it down and do it. Let's get it right. I went outside and might have let a few expletives fly and then came back in and just didn't worry about it and just kept on building. I sent, Russ Berger 
a really nice bottle of a 12-year-old Macallan single malt scotch. He was an older gentleman who I thought might appreciate this. And I got a call from him and I just said, hey, thank you. Because I'd asked him, I was like, can I pay you for your, no, I don't pay me anything. So I just sent him this bottle of scotch in the mail and said, hey, thank you. And he wrote, he called me back and he said, you can call me anytime you want to. He said, nobody's ever done that before. And I was like, man, you, you, you probably saved me a lot of time and money over the years by helping my control room sound better. And he did. And it's like, if you think about it, it's like, yeah, that cost hundreds of dollars to redo that wall. It cost $75 to buy a bottle of single malt scotch and 25 bucks to ship it, which may be against the law to ship alcohol across state lines. But let's just say that the whole thing cost me 500 or $1,000 or something. Well, 23 years in business, We've got two studios going in for the last 15 of those. We've booked thousands and thousands and thousands. I mean, just like per day. I mean, 23 times 365 is uh, basically my studio sounds so much better at an expense of, of maybe a couple of pennies a day. And if you ask somebody that owned a studio, hey, if there was a machine in your studio where every day when you came in, you could put a penny in it the whole time you owned the studio and make it sound better, would you do that? And the answer would be, <laughs> of course I would. Why wouldn't I do that? And that's about, I mean, that's, you know, you got to look at the long game. It's like if, if you make a mistake, if you, you got to spend some money, if you got to spend it twice to cover your mistake, spend it and cover your mistake. And just don't worry about it. It's, that's done. Once it's done, it's done. It's water under the bridge. Just keep on moving. You'll do a better job. You'll make better records. Better records will get you more records. And more records, you'll more than earn the money back if you take the time to do it right than you will if you hurry through something or cut a corner because you're not going to get the work because your records don't sound good. And telling somebody, well, it doesn't sound good because I was saving money. It's like, I want to make a record with somebody like that. I want to make a record with somebody that tells me they can make my guitar sound like I'm walking through outer space or something. No consumer is going to be like, oh, well, if you were trying to save money, I get it. This burger tastes awful, but they saved money making it. Yeah, I don't care about that. I, and I, again, I think that's a good takeaway just in general, not even in the music business, in any business, any pursuit in life is just do it right. Yeah, do it right. It's a long game. You touched on, I don't want to call it a recording academy, and you mentioned how much competition there is to get into the game nowadays, especially with the advent of home recording, stuff like that. Do you have any thoughts on like, you've got your, your full sales out there, your Belmonts, things like that, people that are interested in pursuing a career in this, like what, what should they be doing? The first thing they should be doing is recording. I mean, I don't care if you're making records on GarageBand or a four-track cassette or Ableton or Pro Tools. It's all cheap. It's all affordable. Making something cool and learning how to do it, there's so many online resources too. I would just start doing it. And then I would also read Tapeop, T-A-P-E-O-P. Um, that is a reference to the old tape operator in studios that look like this uh, picture back here behind me, where you had somebody that ran the console and somebody else that operated, hit play and record on the tape machine, a tape op. And so tape op is on magazines online or in print. The print version, you can get a free subscription to it. It is so brilliant. It is a practical recording magazine about creative, creative recording. And um, it ranges from people who have never done this, who have like do this in their bedroom and how they make records up to people that make huge hit records and write like movie soundtracks. That's a great resource. 
I would just start doing it and read tape op. And if I want to go a little further, then you look into your education options and there's things out there. There are people that want to get a college degree. And if you want to get a college degree and learn how to produce records, you could come here to the University of Georgia, which is where I'm doing this now. You could take our production classes and you could do some internships and we'll teach you how to do this as part of your college degree. Or it's like, well, what I really want to do is I only want to study audio engineering. Okay, cool. But I want a college degree. Great. Go to the University of Indiana. Our Frank, you and my good friend Drew Vandenberg is a product of the University of Indiana audio engineering program. And based on the before and after of Drew, he started working for me when he was in high school and coming out of that program. And then the other people that he introduced me to went to that school, um, Joel Hatstadt, I believe he went there, um, uh, Neil Warner, um, Alex Crow, every one of those guys, just great engineers, a solid, solid foundation. That's one of the best pure audio engineering programs I got to think any that I've ever encountered. I've never been there, but people that come out of that program, it's a great program. So, I mean, you pick what works for you. You can go to college. You could go to one of these recording schools. I will say that of the for-profit recording schools, there are two things that consumers should know and be aware of. One, some of these things take several years to do and cost a lot of money. Some of them, like the recording workshop, which is still in operation today, take six or seven weeks and cost I don't know what it costs today. I would, when I did it, including room and board and gas and everything going up there, I spent about 3,500 bucks for seven weeks. It was the best investment of my entire life. Professionally, that is. Any money I spent on my children, that's my real best investment of my life. But, uh, but anyway, I bet, it's, I bet the recording workshop now, you can do this for maybe, I'm guessing, don't quote me, go on their website, look it up. I'm guessing five, $6,000, something like that in today's dollars. Six, seven weeks, boom, you're out. Can I learn this in six, seven weeks? I think you can learn whether you can do it or not in six, seven weeks, and then it's on you. For-profit education, um, there's two things to be aware of. One is that going to one of these recording schools for two or three years, yeah, you've got two or three years of education. I am not convinced that you need two or three years to do this because there's people that we know that, I mean, I'm saying this from the standpoint of somebody that owns a studio and has a life of time of learning in this. There's people that are figuring out how to do this on their own and their laptop that make amazing music. So it's different for different people. I don't know that spending $90,000 for three years or two years or however long some of these programs are, I really don't know because the ones I know about are obviously the recording workshop because I went there and then at a college because I teach at one. There's people that come out of those things that do amazing work, you know, but to me, it seems for most people, that seems like an awfully heavy burden financially to take on. The other reason that I would be very careful about an expensive thing like that is this. It's not 1970 where you can go to LA and get a job at Sunset Sound sweeping the floors and a year later, you're an assistant engineer and two years after that, you're working on a Led Zeppelin record. It's not 1991 in Athens where John Keane called me to ask me if I would consider coming over and learning how to engineer as he do because he needed somebody. There is a flood of competition to get into this right now. I love studios. I love gear. I love big rooms where everybody records at the same time. I have them and I think it's awesome. I don't think I would do it if I was 20 and starting out that way today. I would work in somebody else's studio because the financial risk is tremendous. But if you do this and you take on massive amounts of student debt, you may not be able to find, it could take you a very long time to pay that money back. This isn't like taking on student debt to get a business degree or a teaching degree or something like this, where it's just like, well, I went to the University of Georgia. I got a degree in 
risk management. I work an insurance company. I paid my debt back. I went to law school. It was frightfully expensive. I didn't do either of these things. I'm just using these as examples. Um, and I went to medical school and I'm paying my debt back. Yeah, but you're, you're making the money back. If you go to an expensive standalone for-profit recording school and you pay $90,000, I don't know where the, where the job's going to come from to pay this back. The other thing is this. In for-profit education, we see these ads on TV for these for-profit colleges, the like the University of Phoenix or the ITT School of Technology, the Cordon Blue School of Culinary Arts, the Georgia School of Bartending, learn to work in a doctor's world, whatever these things are. These are for-profit institutions and a school like like an institute of higher learning, like a traditional one, like the University of Indiana or NYU or Belmont or Miami or UGA, these are nonprofit colleges, right? But these for-profit schools, they essentially operate almost 100% on student federal student loans. And this is a weird thing to talk about in a music business podcast, but I'm still going to talk about it. There is a scandal coming and it's like you go to one of these schools and there are recording schools that operate like this too, or where it's just like, come to our school. It's cost $80,000. I don't have $80,000. Boy, do we have a deal for you. You don't need $80,000 because you're going to get a student loan. Well, I don't know how to do that. It doesn't matter. Old Billy over here processes student loans for us. Meet with him and he'll fill out the FAFSA for you. It's a federal student loan application. And then here's how it works. They fill it out on your behalf. That pays for your education. Is that it? Sounds like a great deal to me. Well, they get paid. They get their tuition paid by the federal student loan. And then you, the consumer, get the debt. And when you graduate, you have to pay it back. If you have graduated and have gainful employment, then you're making enough money, you can pay it back. And if you get your job with your risk management degree as an insurance agent or your job as a lawyer with your law degree, yeah, you're going to pay your debt back because you make enough money, you can do this. But if you pay too much money to a standalone for-profit recording school, and you can't make any money recording, you might wind up working fast food or something and scrambling. You're making $9 an hour and you're trying to pay back 50,000 bucks. I mean, good luck. It's, I mean, and it's sad, but it happens. And uh, the problem I see a lot of these things advertise um, as job placement. It's like, I don't know what kind of jobs you're getting placed in because as we know, there is a funnel of people that want to get into professional recording and um, the major studio business has changed so radically where there's so fewer actual job jobs and everybody's a freelance person and we are truly a part of the gig economy. So it's very much buyer beware. So basically, I guess my standard is this. I personally would not recommend any young person that I know that came and asked me to attend a for-profit school, whether it's recording or anything, that accepts federal student loans because the schools make the money. The students get these loans that they may or not be able to pay be able to pay back with the job they get as a result of their education, and the taxpayers are soaked. Everybody else pays for this. Um, I think that that is a racket, and I don't. I'm comfortable saying that. I'm not naming names of places, but any for-profit education that takes federal student loans, I think, is a racket. And I've said this a bunch of times. And I'll continue to say it because I think it preys on people that don't know better. I think that's an unfair business practice. Any recording school that does not take federal student loans could be a good option for you. And they're out there. They um, And there's people that do teach this stuff and provide great education for it. But that would be the first thing I look at is do you take federal student loans or not? And if they do, 
I'd be really careful with it because they don't have a good track record. If they don't take federal student loans, you just see if it's right for you, but you have to figure out if spending this amount of money makes sense. As somebody who's in education, I totally will sing the benefits of education, furthering your education um, in whatever field you want to get into. But the best way to get into recording is to record. Yeah, I hear you on that. Totally feel that and agree. I'm, I was just sitting here thinking about like how much my Apollo twin cost versus $90,000 or something. That's like. Yeah, you could buy what was an Apollo twin cost, like twelve, thirteen hundred bucks, something like that. And a MacBook, I mean, for a few thousand dollars, you can have something to get started with that is on a level. And that UA stuff, every bit of it sounds great. There's other people that make interfaces too. I'm not a shill for UA, but their stuff sounds great. And um, yeah, you could learn to get the stuff and learn to do it. And you're in great shape. Then if you want to go to school, go to school. If you want to go to college, there are plenty of colleges that have great programs, UGA, MTSU, Belmont, NYU, Miami, Drexel, USC, UCLA, then do. And if you say, well, I don't want to go to college. I don't care about it. I just want to learn to record. Then research production schools. And then, like I say, make sure something that you can afford, that you can visualize yourself making the money back. I mean, number one rule of investing, this is true of buying a piece of equipment or investing in some experience, is this an amount of money that if it doesn't work out, you're cool with it. And if it's just like, well, it's a few thousand dollars, which, you know, at my entry level job wage is a lot of money, but I love recording and it's worth it to me to buy the computer in the UA Apollo. Great. Cool. It's a few thousand bucks. I'm going to go to study this thing. Great. I have all the money in the world. I don't care that it costs $90,000. I've always wanted to do this. Well, more power to you. I can't personally imagine that feeling. But that's what I think is it's like, you know, make smart investments. Only, only spend an amount, only spend the money that makes sense to you to spend. Great, David. Well, um, I love where this went. Again, I wasn't sure where I was going to start and where we were going to wrap up, but I, f- I feel like you've given us a lot of good intel and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Frank, I'm pleased to do it. To MBUS family, anything I can ever do. And uh, I hope that you'll be able to successfully edit down my rambling, long-winded, uh, non-sequitur answers. And there you have it. Thanks again to David for taking the time to chat with me. I forgot to mention in the intro, if you didn't already know this about me, I'm actually an alumnus of the program which David currently teaches. So he's been something of a mentor to me, and I'm always happy to spread his gospel out to the world. Thank you for listening, as always. If you're interested in more insider information like this, be sure to check out our weekly newsletter. You can sign up at sweetheartpub.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. That way you'll be notified when the next episode drops. If you have any specific questions for me or any of our guests, feel free to tweet us at sweetheartpub or shoot myself or Rachel an email. That's frank at sweetheartpr.com or rachel at sweetheartpr.com. We are not hard to find. This episode was produced by myself and Brandon Kinder, and the theme music that you're hearing each week was created and produced by me. Now, go do something useful.